Wow. Thanks uh, again, all of you, for being here uh, at Socrates and City. We've been doing these roughly monthly. Uh, some of you, I know, have been here uh, to each one of these, and we, we aim to be eclectic. For example, you'll remember uh, May 31st, we had uh, Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon 50 years ago. And I'm sorry to say, none of the guests we've had since then has walked on the moon. <laughs> and I feel um, we're doing the best we can. We tried, uh, but there really was, uh, there was no one else who walked on the moon who was willing to be our guest. So uh, from here on in, I think it's going to be mostly terrestrially bound guests. <laughs> and again, I, uh, I apologize. I'm sorry. It um, I want to say, um, to those of you unfamiliar with the concept of Socrates in the city, Socrates famously said the unexamined life is not worth living. And then he blew his brains out in an alley. <laughs> That's not true. Um, he said the unexamined life is not worth living. And we thought, I think 20-something years ago, that, you know, New Yorkers in particular lead particularly unexamined lives. Uh, we're kind of going after the brass ring. Uh, and it would be nice if we could have a forum where we could have conversations where people uh, talked about the big questions, you know, the big questions, uh, whether God exists, uh, whether there's such a thing as human nature, whether science is compatible with faith, whether we can know anything, uh, you know, things like that. First of all, I want to thank the Discovery Institute for helping make this possible, and I want to thank in particular Mr. David Thayer, uh, who is now going to rise and sing the national anthem. David, <laughs> David, are you? No? Not going to happen? What, are you a globalist now? You don't believe in that? <laughs> David, thank you anyway. Um, I'm happy to say that I was able to lure Dr. Berlinski uh, from Paris. It's a big deal to fly here from Paris. Um, and uh, we're really grateful that he was willing to do that. Uh, I only live on the Upper East Side, and I'm more tired than he is because we've spent some time <laughs> together. The other day, I think I've been doing too much. I, the other day, this literally happened. I was exhausted. And I said, to, to explain that I was exhausted, I said, this is a sentence I said, I said, it is so tired, I'm 10 o'clock. <laughs> I literally said that. I think that tells you that things were beginning to break down at that point. It is so tired, I'm, I'm 10 o'clock. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. You've been a great audience. Good night. Um, <laughs> Some of you know about David Berlinski, uh, and you came anyway. I want to say thank you. Uh, it's, uh, he, he's tough to sum up, particularly difficult to sum up. Um, uh, he's a best-selling author. Uh, he has a Ph.D. from Princeton. Big deal. Who doesn't, right? Um, he's taught philosophy and mathematics at universities in France uh, and the United States. He's a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute. He's the author of many books, uh, uh, I've been reading a few of them recently that I hadn't seen before. Um, and I, I want to say, uh, I hate the fact that he's here because I, I hate to embarrass people. You know me. Um, but not only does he have something to say, but he says it so particularly gloriously that I am taken aback often. Uh, he's uh, outrageously, uh, I think, probably uniquely uh, talented uh, as a writer. Um, as a speaker, not so much. Um, 
No, I think, I think you'll see that I'm kidding in that. Um, he, uh, just to be clear, uh, he has authored, uh, works on systems analysis, differential topology, and again, who has not? Uh, theoretical biology, analytic philosophy, the philosophy of mathematics. He's written three novels. He's taught philosophy, math, and English. Um, He's held research fellowships at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria and at the Institute, uh, how do we say this? Desult Etudes Scientifiques, something like that, Gesundheit. Um, He is, as I said, the author of uh, a number of books. I can't remember which one I read first. Some of you know The Devil's Delusion. It is really, really uh, extraordinary. No less than William F. Buckley Jr. said, Berlinski's book is everything desirable. It is idiomatic, profound, brilliantly polemical, amusing, and of course, vastly learned. I congratulate him. Buckley could, that, that's very complimentary, and yet he sort of sounds like a jerk, even in saying something that nice. It's, 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 in, it's in, incredible. Other people uh, have said nice things about David's books, and the way they said them, I thought some of these were worth reading. George Gilder, who I was just with uh, at an event, uh, I don't know, in Las Vegas uh, not so long ago, he, I, I, I keep threatening to have him as a guest at Socrates in the City, uh, but he says, David Berlinski is to science writing what Tiger Woods is to golf. Uh, he can score from anywhere. Again, now, this is, this is in 2009, Woods, okay? Just so you're clear. We're talking about that Tiger Woods. He can score from anywhere against any opponent on any course. The Deniable Darwin, which is one of David's books, is a compulsive revel of his incandescent prose and jugular polemics, as irresistible as Gödel's proof. And who can't resist Gödel's proof? Uh, I like to take a crack at resisting it. Um, uh, Gerald Schroeder, who was uh, one of our guests at Socrates in the City about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, says, David Berlinski's ability to weave the lessons of history with the wonders of modern science is unmatched, as is his use of subtle humor that enlivens his text. These essays will delight many and annoy others. And David can be, this is one of the reasons I love David Berlinski. Uh, he can be beautifully annoying uh, in the way that he writes. Michael Behe, uh, whom I interviewed at Socrates in the City in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, he said, with high style and lighthearted disdain, very well put, David Berlinski deflates the intellectual pretensions of the scientific atheist crowd. Maybe they can recite the periodic table by heart, but the secular Berlinski shows that this this doesn't get them very far in reasoning about much weightier manners. So uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about a number of... uh, David Berlinski's books, but we'll focus on the most recent one, mainly, which is called Human Nature. And in order to do that, I have to ask David Berlinski to join me on the stage. David Berlinski, please join me on the stage. Well, hello there. How are you doing? I've been better. How are you? Better as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do mean it. When it just means so much to me that you were willing to drag yourself across an ocean to be here. Thank you very, very much. Uh, very I didn't welcome. say this uh, 
just now, but tomorrow uh, you will be at our studio to do my radio slash TV program. It'll be way better than this, but um, <laughs> but whatever we don't talk about tonight, we can talk about then. Uh, Socrates, of course, asks questions, and I always want to frame things with a question, roughly speaking. So the title of your book is Human Nature, and I did speak with you. Uh, you were in Paris. We did a Skype interview in my program, but I'm fascinated by uh, your view. So I want to frame the larger conversation with the question, what is human nature or whether there is such a thing as human nature? But before we go there, let me ask you, um, in in writing the book, which is a series of uh, related essays, how did you frame the book? Did you originally think you wanted to write a series of essays that would fall under the rubric of human nature somehow? No, I don't think so. Um... All of my books have been framed by the simple imperative of finding out just who I happen to hate at that particular time. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a, a target-rich environment, as one says in the military, especially talking about human nature, since so many people deny its existence. Well, what you just said, so many people deny its existence, that wasn't really clear to me until I was reading your book and talking to you about your book. I, I, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. No, most, most people ordinarily wouldn't, wouldn't think of it that way. So in what sense are people denying the concept of human nature? Maybe, well, go ahead. That's, I wanna... Well, you, you take a look at the anthropologists, or you take a look at the biologists. Take a look at Stephen Jay Gould, for example. He's writing about human beings, and he says it's just an ancient prejudice that we are different in kind rather than degree from the rest of the animal kingdom. Well, it's an ancient prejudice for a good reason. It happens to be true. Human beings are different in kind. He obviously was a Darwinian evolutionist. Sort of. I mean, he had many reservations. I know. I know. About punctuated uh, equilibrium Equilibrium, and all that garbage. But the point is that the po- one of the points you make, uh, I-, I think, in a couple of your books, is that if you believe in Darwinian evolution, in effect, you wipe out the concept of human nature because everything's attenuated and everything is gradations. So talk a little bit about that because I find that fascinating. I think, I think that's, uh, that's a crucial point, and it's seeped into uh, the larger culture. Uh, in, in many different ways. It's not a simple story by any means. But the Darwinian point of view is that you have, at the very beginning, some sort of uh, unadulterated blob of living structure. And by successive modifications, which inevitably are very small, because large modifications will destroy the organism, you create a burgeoning network of different species. That's the Darwinian idea, a reticulation of a primordial blob from which we're all, from which most of us are all descended. Um, the idea fits very ill with facts on the ground. Facts on the ground, for example, is that no matter the extent to which we feel a warm sense of sympathy in looking at a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee is inevitably behind the bars of the cage and we're in front. And that's a very conspicuous difference. 
it's not only who is telling whom what to do, it's also um, a fact about any number of different properties of the human organism. We're the only species that has language. We're the only species that does mathematics, art, literature, science, music. We're the only species to organize ourselves successfully in any kind of gathering larger than the herd or the tribe. These are all very fundamental characteristics. So Darwinian evolution, by definition, wipes out the concept of human nature because it says there's no such thing as a distinct species. Everything's attenuated. Um, do they deal with that? Did any, did, did, I mean, what, I just find it so fascinating. When I read it in your book, it, and it struck me that by definition, there can be no such thing as clear human nature. If you believe we evolved out of the primordial soup, through natural selection, whatever, it just makes everything a muddle. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to argue that, that there's anything like a proof of it. It's a current of sentiment, a current of sympathy. And Darwin himself recognized that. One of the, one of the uh, notable passages in his book, he says, and he sort of scratches his head. And, what are the real consequences of my theory, such that it is? And he says to himself, well, and all of a sudden he comes to the conclusion, there is no such thing as a species. Species is an elaboration. It may be a bookkeeping artifact, but it has no fundamental reality in the biological world. All that exists in the biological world, and this is Darwin paraphrased by me, is an accumulation of individuals fighting, mating, struggling for existence, and acquiring small differences in their uh, characteristics. And if this is so, what room is there for an additional concept of the species? Species must be an ever-shifting local group of populations. Um, rather an odd conclusion for a man to make who's titled his book On the Origin of Species. <laughs> it was a conflict in which he did not find particularly vexing, but I find it very troubling because what Darwin had to say about the existence or non-existence of species is one thing, but the ramification of these ideas throughout the sciences, the social sciences at least, is, uh, is very important. Look, uh, Donald Trump, very famous remark, talking about other cultures, uh, absolutely infuriating series of remarks, and he says about other cultures, why should we have rotten cultures coming into the United States. He made a firm judgment. Some cultures are good, some cultures are bad. Now, I'm not endorsing what Trump said, but it was a very honest expression of opinion, which I suspect in one way or another we all share, although in one way or another we're all unwilling to advocate uh, for the views that we share. However, the instantaneous objection from, say, the anthropologists or the social scientists was first a, a declaration of moral relativism. It's impossible to make those kinds of judgments. That's just vanity. But second, and the much, much more interesting and important point, uh, they rejected Trump for essentialist reasoning. And what is essentialist reasoning? It's assigning essential properties to one group of individuals and essential properties, but different properties to another group. One group is rotten, one group is not rotten. That's an Excuse essential me. property. Didn't he mean, I mean, the way you just phrased it, he was criticizing the culture, not the people themselves. 
Yeah. Right? In other words, you can be part of a culture that believes in human sacrifice and slavery, and you can say that that's, uh, we don't want that here. Yeah. So? That's my question. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see the consequence that's said to follow. In other words, one would be racist or racialist in no, the, no. The, the comment, and the other one is criticizing a culture. The idea, the, the objurgation, as it was advocated by anthropologists, is that Trump and everybody who thinks like Trump is committing an intellectual error in claiming certain cultures or groups of individuals or societies have certain essential characteristics. I mean, after all, had Trump said certain people have not appreciated the grandeur of the English common law yet, and therefore they should be rejected from immigration status, but should they master the intricacies of, say, Braxton in the 13th century, they would be welcome. That would be one argument. I would be very sympathetic to that argument, as you would, of course, be sympathetic as well. But that's not what he was saying. He's saying these people are rotten. That's very different. Or these cultures are rotten. Well, I mean, I think the distinction between whether he said the people were rotten and the cultures were rotten is, is important. Uh, but I don't know that we want to go down that I don't know. Trail. Culture is just a group of people who behave in a certain, certain way. Well, but it's not intrinsic to the people. But that's the objection. It's not the objection from the anthropologists, the social scientists. He's making an essentialist argument. He is saying, yes, it is intrinsic. It's a necessary feature of these cultures. And that's what they found objectionable. But that goes right into Darwin. Is there such a thing as human nature? If there is such a thing as human nature, it can be parsed into different human cultures. And if there is such a thing as human nature, is it necessary, inflexible, irrefrangible? Is it part of destiny? That's a very important question when you ask whether men can become women, isn't it? It's not a question I ask. You should. Uh, no, I think that's, I think that's been settled. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm fascinated that people We've ask the question. We've settled it in our own mind, but it hasn't been settled in the medical literature. It hasn't been settled in the literature of psychology, anthropology, social studies. It's wide open, and it trades on these very uh, subtle distinctions. But, go well, ahead. No, no, it gets, it gets to the heart of your book, the concept of human nature, whether there is such a thing and what it is and what does it mean and yes, uh, when someone blithely uh, asserts that men can become women or women become men, it goes immediately to this question. Of course it does. What is a man? What is a woman? And when did we suddenly decide that there was much question about this? Well, I think the question was latent for a long time. Uh, there, there's been a struggle in philosophy and in mathematical logic for a very long time about modal logic, that is, logic of necessity and possibility. Now, clearly, some things are absolutely necessary. We don't have to argue. Uh, Eric Metaxas equals Eric Metaxas. is true everywhere you look. There's no argument about that. But some things, it's very difficult to assign the proper scope for necessity or possibility. Uh, we talked about men becoming women, women becoming men. What about human beings becoming reptiles? Is that just not likely, or is it impossible? Which one? Where does intuition direct you? 
Uh, suppose you had someone said, oh, you know, the only thing separating me from life as a reptile is the acquisition of a suitable backplating if I want to become a turtle or whatever reptiles have by way of circulatory systems. These are uh, certainly navigable uh, acquisitions. I could acquire uh, a reptilian armamentarium if I wished. Is that the only thing making it very difficult for you to become a... I'm posing this as an open question. Is there just a little bit standing between you and the reptiles? This is... I, I remember when you last spoke uh, at Socrates in the city, um, you talked about... You, 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 were, you were talking about evolution and uh, you were making clear what most of us really aren't aware of is how unbelievably complex it would be, for example, for uh, a, um, a whale uh, to become a cow or a cow to become a whale. In other words, if you don't know anything about what makes up a cow and what makes up a whale and what would be necessary for one to evolve into the other, you could say, well, I can see that happening. But if you begin to look into it, as you made clear then, it becomes preposterous. So when you talk about becoming a lizard, obviously it's, it has to do with infinitely more complex things than some armor plating. Well, that's true. But is it only that it's real tough for we men to become reptiles? Or is it that there's something more fundamental? It's not just that it's real tough. Well, tough to the point of impossible. I mean, remember Kafka's story in the Metamorphosis. One day, Gregor Sam's up. uh, Gregor Sam's, I think I remember the name correctly, wakes up and discovers he's been transformed into a gigantic cockroach. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Wonderful story. There's absolutely nothing humorous in the story. Once you accept the first sentence of Kafka's prose, everything follows logically. And... um, The family accepts him initially as a cockroach, and he discovers that he has cockroach tastes as well. And there are unbelievably poignant uh, scenes within the story. Gregor Samza, now incarnated as a cockroach, looks out the window and discovers he's got a cockroach's sight. He can't see beyond the windowsill. And he remembers very distinctly, in a moment of great poignancy, he used to see the entire panorama of Prague before his eyes no longer can do as much. Kafka, in his own way, in 1916-1917, asked exactly the same kind of question. Uh, Is this a plausible transformation, no matter how difficult it may be? After all, on Darwinian scenarios, we certainly could become reptiles if we wound back the genetic clock to the last common ancestor and then followed a divergent path. That's possible. But that's not really the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the question, do human beings have a fundamental essence that's radically different from the essence of other animals and that cannot be changed at will because the change would involve not something that's difficult but something that is impossible in the way that squaring the circle is impossible. My own, my own feeling, and it's no more than a feeling and intuition, is, yeah, we do possess a radically different human nature, radically different from the rest of the animal kingdoms, and no, it cannot be changed. And this has implications when we talk about um, 
Those overly optimistic plans to download our consciousness into a computer and continue existing in silicon long after, in my own case, the world goes mad with grief. <laughs> we neglected to install a snare drum for lines like that, but in, the, in post, I'm told, we can, uh, we can get that effect. Well, look, um, there's no way around it. Uh, if you have a secularist, uh, materialist, naturalist worldview that says there is no God and we got here by, by blind Darwinian evolution, it follows logically that there's no such thing as human nature. So to assert that there is such a thing as human nature somehow inevitably, for me at least, brings up the God question, that we're made in God's image. That, that what, In other words, why would we protest? On what basis are we protesting that, um, that it's preposterous that we could become lizards? Or what, you know, in other words, all of this points... Sure. Because I, I'm always... When you say your you're enemies, <laughs> you're, in writing this book... I mean, you're, you're, you're taking um, aim at a few different kinds of ideological enemies. And I think that uh, at, at the back of much of it uh, is a hostility toward the narrative that says there is a God that we're created in his image. That's kind of... No, on my part? No, not at your part. And the part of your ideological enemies that you're taking on in the book. Well, I'm pretty Catholic in my ideological enemies, and they don't have to be atheists, but that's a convenient target. Uh, I like going after dopey physicists, too. And I think you had three things, naturalist, secularist, materialist. I'm behind all those three. Unwillingly, but that's where I find myself. How so? Because I think there's a tremendous weight of argument in favor of those positions, as well as a tremendous weight of argument against it. And I think it's irresponsible not to mention it. Okay, let's... I mean, let's define our terms because I, I'm not really doing that. You, uh, in uh, Darwin's, what is it, Den- Deniable Darwin, your book? Yeah, I think so. In that book and in other books, you have argued brilliantly against the idea that we evolved through natural selection, through random processes, yes. that we arrived here... So how can you be a, a naturalist or materialist? I mean, at least to that extent, you're not. Well, I, I, I scruple at this, this claim that one is or stands in belief with a certain position. I'd be very happy to say I hate certain people. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great believer in hate speech, as you know, and uh, despise others, and I'm willing to celebrate a third group But the fact is, in 2022, we're the heirs to a very long scientific tradition, and it's just not a good idea to say one part of that tradition is sunk into iniquity and the other is incandescent with probity. That's not a good idea. Uh, even, Even Darwinian evolution has a great deal going for it. I mean, there's a great deal of evidence that suggests that's just what happened. Small variations happening adventitiously, followed by natural selection. That's not an illusion that something like that happens. The, the skepticism, the points of counter-argument, go deeper. 
But to say that there are very serious counterarguments is not to deny the plain facts underneath our nose, that there is a powerful scientific tradition incorporating Darwinian evolution, a powerful scientific tradition incorporating materialism as well. However vague the concept of a material object is, we know from the history of physics that any intuitive concept of a material object, that just disappears very quickly. I mean, the quantum field is not a material object in any sense of the material, however loose. But that said, the enlargement of a concept to include things formerly precluded is not a bad thing. We now have a much expanded idea of what a material object could be, might be, or is. The important claim is that letting those definitions slide or become elastic, are we still prepared to say that the world that matters is the world of matter? That's the intrinsically interesting claim. I want to um, read something from your um, uh, book, The Devil's Delusion, which speaks to this. You say, every paleontologist writing since Darwin published his masterpiece in 1859 has known that the fossil record does not support Darwin's theory. The theory predicted a continuum of biological forms, so much so that from the right perspective, species would themselves be seen as taxonomic artifacts, which we've touched on, like the classification of certain sizes in men's suiting as husky. That's unbelievably funny. I just have to pause just to make it clear that that's very funny. Um, Questions about the origin of species were resolved in the best possible way. There are no species, and so there is no problem. Inasmuch as the historical record suggested a discrete progression of fixed biological forms that was fatal to Darwin's project. So I understand that there's this tradition, but you've stood pretty clearly against it. So I'm a little bit confused at what are you... um, I mean, I don't think any... In other words, I think it is... I think it is scientific. It's particularly scientific to reject uh, Darwinism at this point because we now can know, based on the absence of the fossil uh, evidence that they were expecting, uh, that that it makes sense. But that doesn't make somebody anti-enlightenment or anti-science. No, no, far from it. But, But look... Uh, it's certainly true that no paleontologist will tell you that the fossil record is anything like the record that Darwin predicted. But it doesn't mean there's no fossil record. And a very important pregnant fossil record, we have a vast store of information about transition between different body forms, for example. It simply can't be ignored. The question is what theory adequately explains it. That's a very different theory. My view is that Darwin doesn't contribute a whole lot of enlightenment, but some And generally speaking, we could all appreciate a little light from time to time. Uh, I can can very plausibly, to my own satisfaction, say that this is an important movement in intellectual history. Darwin's theory is an important theory, and it's all wrong. I think those positions are completely consistent. It's all wrong. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So then what... uh, well, it's interesting. We were talking last night about James Tour, whom I interviewed two weeks ago, roughly in um, in Houston at a Socrates in the City event. He deals. It's it, it's the same. It, it, it's it's a similar concept, right? We've all been told, just as we've been told, that uh, 
you know, we got here through random uh, processes, natural selection, whatever. Everybody believes that it's the story, it's the story, and then we come to think, no, it's wrong. Similarly, abiogenesis says that four billion years ago, there was no life on planet Earth. Then suddenly, single-celled life forms appeared. And then you say, how? And the scientists have been fumfering endlessly for 70 years, for more than 70 years to, to, to come up with this. And James Tour says to that, what you just said, sorry, it's a nice idea, but we now know that it ain't right. Oh, I agree. Look, I, I think James Tour is remarkably courageous. He's a great synthetic chemist, and he's absolutely dead right about origins of life research. That said, there's been a lot of origins of life research and some remarkable synthetic chemistry at the same time. And Tour is the first one to acknowledge that. Sure. I mean, he thinks Donald Sutherland's a great synthetic chemist. So do I. Who is? Sunderland. Oh, I thought you said Donald Sutherland. No, I thought I think Sunderland. you're mistaken. I think I think Elliot Gould is the uh, is the one you're thinking of. Um, Probably his twin kidnapped at birth by gypsies. Well, I mean, that's to me that that would be the fair thing. In other words, you're doing science, and you learn things. Uh, and at some point, maybe you discard what the sure. big theory was, but you don't discard everything you've learned along the way. I mean, no, what sure. you've learned about what uh, constitutes a cell, what is in a cell, what all, all of that stuff maybe wouldn't have been learned if the origin of life folks hadn't been at it. But at, at what point do we ask them for a little intellectual honesty to say maybe, uh, m- maybe you can admit that uh, you, the ladder you've been climbing up all low these seven decades has been leaning against the wrong building? It, that's a good question. I think... James Torr has asked that question of himself. We've talked about it many times. And it's, it's really tough to know when that point comes. It's really tough to know. If you're a working synthetic chemist and you feel that you've made some small incremental progress in explaining the origins of life, and James Torr comes along and says, I mean, that's hopeless. That's hopeless because there's experimental interference in all of your work. Do you give up? Or do you say... Well, I'm not going to listen to James Tour. That's a very difficult judgment. Yeah. Um, I want to turn a little bit. In, in the beginning of your, your book, Human Nature, you talk uh, masterfully and to someone uh, like me um, somewhat cryptically. Uh, I know that that's not your intention. To try to explain what led to World War I. Um, I don't want to, want to get into that too much, but you're, you're, you're making a number of points, and one point that you make, um, well, actually, let me, let, me re- let me read this, because this is, uh, this is some of the, like the, the, the flap copy from your, from your book, just to kind of frame this piece. Conventional wisdom holds that the murder rate has plummeted since the Middle Ages. Humankind is growing more peaceful and enlightened. Man is surely to be, imp- to be much improved. Better genes, better neural circuits, better biochemistry. And we're approaching a technological singularity that well may usher in utopia. You obviously, you, you, you mock this brilliantly in the, in, in the book, and I want to talk about that. Uh, your book 
eviscerates these and other doctrines of contemporary nihilism masquerading as science. Um, There are two things that you seem to focus on when we're talking about human nature. The idea uh, uh, that we are uh, able to, what did Buckley say, immanentize the eschaton, you know, to, to, to achieve utopia somehow, you mock... Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that because that's kind of behind the idea that there is no human nature. We can transcend whatever we call human nature and become anything we want, whether lizards or uh, something more fortunate. Uh, But you also uh, draw upon history, mathematics, logic, and literature to retrain our gaze. This I'm reading the copy On an old truth, many are eager to forget. There is and will be about the human condition beauty, nobility, and moments of sublime insight um, alongside ignorance and depravity. It's it's fascinating to me that you deal with both of those strains in talking about human nature. Maybe we can start just with uh, this, this fiction that we've all been living with. It's like living with the Darwinian narrative the idea that everything's getting better, the greatest thing ever was that we survived the Middle Ages and now we're enlightened and uh, we have penicillin. Well, you know, Steven Pinker became very well known for a claim that he borrowed from a variety of criminologists, like uh, some guy whose name I've forgotten, very good criminologist, uh, Manfred something. At any rate, Pinker argued there's been an 800 year decline in homicide rate. 800 years? 800 year from 1,200. Okay, and you deal with this in one of the early chapters brilliantly. Please go ahead. Um, Homicide rates are simply the the ratio of the homicide in a given location to the population. It's a simple ratio, a simple number. Uh, But it's a number with some uh, remarkable properties. For example, let's say you're, you're living in a village, there's one homicide. The village is comprised of 10 people. One homicide, 10 people. Um, The village is located in East Anglia. And there's a population explosion in Peru. Should that affect the homicide rate? I mean, the homicide rate is the ratio of homicides to population. There's 10 people in that village and a 1,000 newborn infants in Peru. Is the homicide rate 1 over 10 or 1 over 1,010? How do you make that decision? What's the choice? That's not an incidental question, by the way, in New York City, because the homicide rates for New York City can be computed by the borough or by the state or by the country or by the world. How, how does it affect Pinker's larger point? I mean, he's making a vast The point is claim. that since, since the... Um, the, the, the high point of the Middle Ages, say 1,200, 1,200 to 1,300, uh, the decline in homicide rates has been paralleled by an increase in population. So obviously, if those are the only parameters you, you've been considering, as the world gets larger, the homicide rates stay at medieval levels, modern homicide rates must appear to have declined from medieval homicide rates. H over P. P is getting bigger and bigger. H is staying the same, right? 
Therefore, there's been an 800-year decline in the homicide rate. This is insanity as a form of reasoning. It's well, just insanity. I mean, it goes beyond that, because what you, what you say very powerfully in the book, um, um, actually, I, I, I will, I'll read it. Um, because we, we've all lived with this, this idea that everything's getting better, progress, progress, everything's getting better, which is kind of vaguely tied into the idea of evolution. Everything will always get better somehow. You write, um, criminologists understand that terrible crimes took place in the 20th century. They are disposed to ignore them. These are the criminologists. Homicide is one thing, genocide another. Their business is the first, let others deal with the second. The distinction you say, is entirely artificial. Homicide is murder and genocide mass murder. When the statistics pertaining to mass murder in the 20th century are acknowledged, they bleed through every calculation forming a ghastly but ineradicable spike in the otherwise humdrum human record of murders undertaken in some sordid hotel room or in the alleyway behind the Bonhof or in a field of winter wheat. It is in this sense that the 20th century, having introduced into human history crimes never before imagined, or if imagined, never before undertaken, is immortal and will, like the crucifixion, remain a permanent part of the human present. It is simply there an obelisk in human history, black, forbidding, irremovable, and inexpungible. So a big part of your case against Pinker and this Pollyanna view, this topianist view, is, excuse me, the 20th century. I I think that's absolutely true. Look, when criminologists study the homicide rates, they do exclude genocide. They say that's not our business. That's a state crime. It's not an individual crime. Homicide is within the purview of the criminal law, and genocide is beyond the purview of the criminal law. It may be part of international law, but it's not part of criminal law. And uh, therefore, they missed the blazingly obvious facts about the 20th century that there were portions of the globe where the homicide rate converged to one. That is, with a probability approaching certainty, if you happen to have been living in certain parts of Eastern and Central Europe, the probability that you were going to be killed, murdered, in fact, was very close to one. There's no question about that. We know that's true for Nazi Germany. We know something similar, although not identical, was true for Stalin's Russia, Mao's China. We know it was true in Cambodia. These are new crimes in human history, and it's pertinent to observe that. When you factor in genocide, far from an 800-year decline in homicide rates, you have an explosion in homicide rates in the 20th century, an explosion. And I think it's um, seriously reprehensible to argue for a decline in homicide rates in the face of the sordid facts of the times in which we live. That's just a mistake. Well, but, I mean, you're making it sound, I think, a little overly technical. The larger point you're making is that there is this utopianist view uh, that seems to say human beings are more wonderful, obviously, than they actually are. And the 20th century is a rebuke uh, to folks like Pinker and to anyone who says we're making progress. I mean, you don't really resolve it, but you you, you stick it out there that there's a great mystery. Why, uh, I mean, you, you, you don't say why, but you do imply um, in, in your larger discussion of human nature that 
there's this strange thing called evil. Uh, I don't know if you use that word, but I mean, if if you read what happened uh, in the 20th century and you you you, you list uh, more than uh, just what the Nazis did and what the the Soviets did, it's chilling, and it works very strongly against this narrative that hey, everything's getting better, technology is making everything wonderful. Well, I'm a strong believer in original sin. And as such, I can hardly be accused of having an overly optimistic view of human nature. I think it's a powerful doctrine, the most powerful doctrine of the Catholic Church, in fact, and convincingly and absolutely true. But you're not a Catholic. Not in the least. <laughs> but you're, you're a, not in the least. Uh, but you're a, How could I be a Catholic? Uh, have you read my Luther biography? Never. Well, uh, there's a copy for you in the dinner room. Um, no, I, I, uh, I don't mean to uh, make light of, of whether one is Catholic or not, but the, the larger point of original sin, it's a, it's a uh, speaking as a pro-Catholic, non-Catholic, uh, I subscribe to anything that I think is true, including this doctrine of original sin. It seems inevitable. The evidence for it, which you give just inciting what happened in the 20th century. I don't know how somebody gets around that. But when people like Pinker and others try to, I think they are maybe semi-wittingly rejecting the doctrine of original Of sin. course they are. Of course. That's I right. Mean, Pinker would be the first to say he rejects it as a piece of medieval superstition. But, you know, Dr. Johnson had a wonderful response. Boswell posed him the, the same question. Dr. Johnson, what do you think of original sin? And Johnson puffed himself up and said, uh, with, with a considerable amount of asperity, he said, Sir, the inquiry is not necessary for men are so avowedly and confessedly corrupt that all the laws of heaven and earth are unable to prevent them from the commission of their crimes. Surely that has a ring of truth. So, without using religious terms, you seem... There's not one word about religion in no, no, Johnson's you, No, no, I know. But uh, you're, you're nonetheless describing what I would, would call fallenness. You know, I, I don't... Uh, I mean, you seem to shrink from using terms like that, but that's the obvious implication when you're looking at a, a species, when you're looking at human nature and you see this record, it seems like something... It's, it's like everything else we're discussing. It's both. What a work right. of art is man. That has to be said as well. Who said that? Shakespeare. I know. Um, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're right. Um, so the other side, though, it, it's just interesting to me that you have some folks who are painting this rosy picture of sure. of human beings and they seem to really be wedded to that narrative and uh, some of the folks that you've debated Christopher Hitchens and others and that you've taken uh, to task in your books they really did seem um, hostile to these facts I think Christopher Hitchens was a little too intelligent to be taken in by his own rhetoric. And there was, there was something of a showman about him. And uh, I, I think he, he had understood. to be that intelligent not to be taken in by his rhetoric. But I, I know. know what you mean. But I don't go know. ahead. You th so you think he was basically 
making the point. Well, it to was make the, the same personality that insisted on dying flamboyantly in public. If he could uh, have arranged a symphony orchestra at his last um, last moments, he would have done so. And that was part of his charm. He was a, a very large personality. But what is much more interesting are uh, people like the historian Yuval Harari, who looks forward to exactly this kind of utopian scenario where uh, human beings... Is he a transhumanist? Very much so. Okay. Very much so. He, he has a certain skeptical, uh, moral skepticism as well, but he's a transhumanist. He believes in the promotion of human beings to a completely artificial form as a, as a computer entity, something like that. Uh, what's very interesting about all these transhumanists is that they're in an incredible hurry to get out of the human condition. Uh, <laughs> You know, having a body seems, uh, having a human body seems uh, an unbearable imposition to these guys. They'd much rather live as a robot. Uh, no, this is, I'm, I'm being perfectly serious. They're, Although, what does that even mean? I have no idea, but that's what they say. Yeah. Um, they look forward to the acquisition of an entirely synthetic nervous system, vast computational powers, limbs of solid steel, that sort of thing. Just take a little Adderall. <laughs> What's that? Never mind. <laughs> it, it, no, it's just so funny to me I'm, because I'm it's, willing to try it if you it's have. A, to. No, I, I'm just saying. Or I don't know. Do you're, something you're, maybe for my Maybe your back, generation would say just do a line of coke or something. But the it point isn't is that the, the idea that um, they are still they're they're not dealing with the heart of the matter. No, I is, agree. Right. It's then, being human. Right. With a human body, human experiences, human aspirations, and human failings. That's really hard to come to terms with that. Because for all of us, it ends in the same way. Um, to get back to Hitchens for a second, uh, there's another quote in, in your book. You say... Um, Hitchens is prepared to denounce the Vatican for the ease with which it diplomatically accommodated Hitler. But about Hitler, the Holocaust, or the Nazis themselves, he has nothing to say. This is an odd omission for a writer who believes that religion poisons uh, everything. I, um, I, I, I think I said this to you last night. I'm amazed at what seems to me like sheer intellectual dishonesty. You can call it showmanship, but when someone like Hitchens and others only point uh, to things that, uh, in this case, the, the Vatican has done or failed no. to do, but it's it really betrays their animus, and I'm just amazed that they were able to get away with that, and you, you, you did better than anyone in taking them on in your book, The Devil's Delusion, which I recommend very highly, uh, as does William F. Buckley. Um, but you, I'm amazed they were able to get away with that, that for, for, for years that they were uh, kind of making the rounds and nobody just said, this is preposterous, because it was really preposterous. It well, wasn't just here's wrong. the thing. I kind of liked Christopher, and uh, so I'm unwilling now to criticize him. Um, I think he was a very large figure, doesn't mean I agreed with anything that he said. He clearly was wrong about lots of things. Um, in many respects, I prefer punching down to punching up. 
I like my targets to be squatting in front of me. He's bashing them in the head. And Pinker is much more amenable to that, to the adoption of that posture. Um, well, look, it, it, it doesn't matter, and I'm not trying to single out Hitchens, although I will be honest with you is that that's what is, to my mind, enraging about somebody like Hitchens is because he was so brilliant, I expect better from him. Well, I, I think a much better target, also dead, is Steven Weinberg, the physicist. Now, Weinberg was a great physicist, one of the authors of the Standard Model, but just all over the place in physics and clearly a very smart guy. Uh, very pompous. He took himself very seriously, especially at the end. And he's talking to a group of scientists. Uh, and he, he felt impelled to deliver himself of a piece of personal wisdom. That's ha- that happens very often as scientists grow older. Uh, they feel impelled to commit some sort of a moral utterance into the universe. And he said... For bad people to do bad things, we know they're going to do that. They're just rotten. But for good people, for good people to do bad things, you can imagine his finger waggling in the wind. For good people to do bad things, that takes religion. I ask you to concentrate on that phrase. It's almost a quote. For good people to do bad things, that takes religion. He must have had an audience of 500 people. Not one person raised his hand. Not one and said, Professor Weinberg, I have a small question. Just who is imposed on the suffering human race? Barbed wire, poison gas, long-range artillery, Cyclone B, the secret formula for crematoria or nuclear weapons. Professor Weinberg, if memory serves, it was not the Vatican. Not one person asked the question. Well, you, you, I mean, you've been very brave in, in going against some of these folks, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm disappointed uh, that others haven't been uh, more aggressive because it really is, it's one thing to have a difference of opinion. It's another thing to float things that are just completely preposterous. And a lot of, there's, for example, uh, you're part of the Discovery Institute. When we're talking about intelligent Design, or we're talking about, we're trying to figure things out, as everyone is. That's what we do. Uh, we try to figure out how did things get to be the way they are. And the idea that scientists have become almost monolithically scientistic and saying that the one thing that we cannot consider uh, is the thesis that there's a God, that there's an intelligence or whatever, it's unscientific to make that assertion. They have no business making that assertion. The idea that we're going to say that this is the only place we can look. And only you and just a few others have have gone after them on that. Well, let me correct you in one respect. In my own case, personal case, absolutely no courage was required. I had nothing to lose. So no courage was... I mean, I was fired from every academic position I've ever held. Yeah, other than jobs. Right. Um, And... and, um, I also enjoyed the work. I mean, I began intellectual life as a high school bully, very much a victim group that I wish to see better celebrated in contemporary culture. Unlike almost everyone else, we had a great time in high school oppressing everyone else. I remember those days fondly. I've just carried on that tradition in my polemical life so that no courage was involved. Okay. All right, so strike the courage remark. Um, No, I, I... 
I think uh, you're 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 uh, you're being a little coy uh, and humble because it does take courage in the milieu in which we all live, or most of us live, whether in Manhattan or Paris, to take the stands that that you've taken. The way you seem to deal with it is by being very coy about uh, your stance on religion or God. I don't think it's coyness. Why? why well, coy- there's no doubt that it's coyness. Why? Um, because, well, okay, I guess I was going to read another, another quote that ties into this, the larger idea. So, in other words, when people are thinking, uh, they're doing science, they're philosophizing, they're trying to figure things out, there's no way to do that without coming up with a theory before you can prove the theory. That's the definition of a theory, right? So you float some idea. Sure. And you work within that narrative, and you don't apologize for it. You say, we're going to see if this, you know, so yeah. that's what we have with uh, abiogenesis and, and so on and so forth. The, uh, the page um, that I have quoted here, you say, the wave function of the universe is designed to represent the behavior of the universe, all of it. It floats in the void. These metaphors are inescapable and passes judgment on universes. Some are probable, others likely, still others a very bad bet. Nonetheless, the wave function of the universe cannot be seen, measured, assessed, or tested. It is purely a theoretical artifact. Physicists have found it remarkably easy to pass from speculation about the wave function of the universe to conviction that there is a wave function of the universe. This is nothing more than an endearing human weakness. Less endearing by far is their sullen contempt toward religious argument when it's engaged in precisely the same attempt to reach by speculation what cannot be grasped in any other way. It, it, it just seems inevitable that to posit the idea of a God, I mean, I understand if you're, you know, if you don't have tenure and you're, uh, you're predisposed toward uh, intelligent design, you want to say, look, I'm not saying how this happened, I'm just saying this is what the, what the facts are. But a lay person, I think, automatically says, well, it seems like there would be some uh, vast intelligence that that did this. It doesn't seem logical to think anything else. I mean, I can't really... In other words, I'm not sure why that's difficult to say. I don't don't understand. You mean for me? Well, for anybody. Sounds okay to me. I mean, it it does, but... But you're asking much more. Scientists who work in that field or whatever they all I mean even Jim Tour who is very courageous has to be very very careful he has tenure but he doesn't want to say what I think any lay person who's familiar with what he's saying would would say you can't well, I mean there's there lay people and lay people some people will take that view but you know lots of people will say with Shakespeare that it doesn't mean a thing it has no intrinsic significance there is no superior figure I mean, you know, Shakespeare's writing in the 16th century, and he has Macbeth saying exactly that. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps through this petty pace from day to day. Well, Macbeth's not really a hero. He's a layperson. <laughs> That's very funny. He's um, perfectly capable of rejecting what you argued was common sense. It's common sense. To, so I agree with that. May, I think, from the point of view of the, uh, from the point of view of the, uh, 
very early uh, 17th century, it's logical, but it, it becomes less logical now that we know what we know. I'm sorry, what, what becomes less logical? The, the, the idea that there is a meaning maker, capital M, behind everything. You can't, maybe you can't prove it, but the, the, the more we seem to discover, the more it seems difficult to come up with another theory. Well, there's certain questions which, which um, we can agree have no obvious resolution or solution. And that agreement does not preclude saying, I have no commitment to either position. I don't agree with Macbeth, poor player strutting and fretting his hour on the stage. And I don't agree or don't, I don't feel sympathetically inclined to a personal declaration of enthusiastic faith either. I don't think that I'm compelled to do that. Believe me, if I, if I felt a spiritual urge, I would make it manifest. It's not coyness. I don't feel the urge. I think I read that at the end of Human Nature, you had an interview. I think it's an Italian magazine. I'm not sure. Um, but... Uh, you 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 say something very similar to what you just said, and I'm not sure that I get, that I that I that the connection makes sense to me. In other words, when you say a spiritual urge, to me, it's just logic, right? In other words, if if if, if I if logic if I look at the fine tuned universe, uh, or I look at any number of things, it would lead me like. Uh, Robert Hoyle or anybody to say it looks like some vast superintelligence has monkeyed with the yeah, physics. Yeah, but Eric, everything looks like something else. That's easy to say. There's no purchase in an argument because all metaphors are false, all similes are true. You I'm, need, I'm you, just surprised you don't find that compelling. It's one thing to say that I don't have a, 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 a spiritual inclination but, uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not clear on how you go from th- those facts to, uh, I mean, abiogenesis, we haven't talked about that here. But, I mean, it, 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 the level of what's required. I agree with that. I agree with Jim It's so Tor. staggering yeah. that I'm just knocked back with awe th- that this could have occurred. And it suggests some kind of... In other words, to me, it's just a logical inference. It's not like I feel like it's pushing something spiritually. It's just, you know, maybe we don't know who is behind this. Well, but, but, but the point that I, I can't quite seem to grasp is what is the logical inference? That uh, a vastly creative, uh, infinitely intelligent... Uh, probably personal force is to account for what we discover. What's the premise to that argument? Well, it's, the, it's, the, it's the other theories falling flat. In other words, if you can plausibly state that we got here through accident, then people go, okay, we got here by accident. That makes sense. But, but look, Eric, but the more if that's your standard of success, then philosophers should be kings. That's and, an old and, joke about and they, Socrates. And they should, He yeah. says to Mino, 
Surely you'll agree, Mino, the night follows the day. Mino says, yes, Socrates, that's true. And the day follows the night. That's true too, Socrates. And Socrates says, therefore it follows philosophers should be kings. That's about the structure of the argument you've just offered. Therefore it follows philosophers should be kings. It's complicated, therefore there's a personal God. That's an interesting claim. No, I, think I you're, don't think you're it's a valid reducing, argument. You've reduced what I was saying because I, I don't think it's just complicated. In other words, I think the implication... Listen, I don't think anyone can be forced to believe, but I think dealing with the facts at this point, it is so compelling that, it, it, yes, it looks like there's a, a superintelligence behind this. So uh, until we know that there isn't or until we know... Um, what that superintelligence is like, w- why is it difficult to say, yeah, there's, it, that's what it looks like? Because I don't find it compelling. Yeah. And, but, I'm actually, perfectly prepared to be compelled. <laughs> what, Coyness what, again. What is, but you haven't compelled me. So then what is, what is uh, well, I mean, I'm not here to compel you, but I'm, I'm just fascinated by how you process this. In other words, what is it about it... Uh, I, I, don't, I was going to. I don't know if you can describe how you find something not to be compelling, but I'm I'm curious. In other words, what what possibly could account for the grandeur of existence? Well, it used to just be the grandeur of existence, oh, but the now there's a level and of, of what the complexity and grandeur of existence. Well, and even complexity. I mean the the. Fine-tuning, I don't know how, what, what that is. That's not merely complexity. It's, it, suggests, um, it suggests mind. Well, it suggests mind to you, it don't to me. It See, suggests I, that's something very I, complicated. Um, it doesn't suggest mind to you. I'm, just, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, so I, I wish you could tell me more about that because I'm, I'm just fascinated by how you're... I think that here, here's something, actually, that... Look, I'm an equal opportunity employer, you know. It doesn't matter which position I'm attacking. If I don't find it plausible, I don't find it plausible. Right. And the argument you've given, I've never found plausible. It goes back to Aristotle. Um, but I didn't find Gödel's uh, argument, recasting of the ontological argument, plausible either. And Gödel was a very great logician. He didn't make the case either. Um, let me read. I know we don't have too much. Um, yeah, I got all the time in the world. Time left. <laughs> um, let me read uh, something that you wrote here. Um, you write If we are able to explain how the human mind works, neither in terms of a series of physical causes, nor in terms of a series of infinitely receding mechanical devices, what then is left? There is the ordinary, very rich, infinitely moving account of mental life that without hesitation we apply to ourselves. It is an account, frankly, magical in its nature. The human mind registers, reacts, and responds. It forms intentions, conceives problems, and then, as Aristotle dryly noted, it acts. And in none of this do we seem to be doing anything that can be explained or expressed in terms of what the brain does or what any machine can do. Uh, mind is like no other property of physical systems. The physicist Eric Harth has reasoned, reasonably remarked, it is not just that we don't know the mechanisms that give rise to it, to mind. We have di- difficulty in seeing how any mechanism can give rise to it. 
I think that's true. Well, you wrote it, so of yeah. course you think it's true. No, that but, doesn't follow. What? That doesn't follow. Oh, okay. But it is, I, I, at least for me, it just it rises to the level of being a staggering thing. No, the I mystery agree with of mind. That. It's just, you know, it's not just, meh, it's a mystery. It's a staggering thing. And the idea that people are so hostile to it that they would actually say, no, no, there's, na- there's a naturalistic explanation. Uh, that, you know, we're robots, that your mind is your brain, and so on and so forth. It seems silly. No, I agree with you. That's a meretricious point of view. To dismiss the grandeur mystery of the mind is just clumsy reasoning. We have every reason to appreciate the human mind for what it is, something unlike anything else in existence. That's just a fact. We should appreciate the facts more, do less by way of theories. Well, even when you're talking about something like mind, uh, trying to theorize about, whether we're trying to theorize beyond, uh, the the thing itself seems... It's magnificent. But, I mean, it seems to partake of something not of this world. That, to me, seems a logical inference. It doesn't seem like much of a leap when we're but talking about something world, like mind. What world do you find your mind in, if not this world? How many do we have available to us? Me, I got one. Well, you know, no, you know more, uh, I mean, you know enough uh, about, uh, you know, physics to know that there are uh, more dimensions than there, you know, than, than, than what we have here. Uh, that's not really... Um, I, I don't think that it is any kind of a leap backwards to to, to some you know magical. I mean, even the the you, you you use the term it is an account, frankly, magical in its nature. When you're talking about something that seems magical, it seems we're appealing to the idea we sense. I mean, C.S. Lewis writes about it. We sort of can smell that there's something beyond, and we shouldn't be ashamed of admitting that and i and i think that the the secular culture in we live tells us well yes you should be ashamed of that but i think most I think people it's a question of shame or guilt or reprobation i think there's a certain amount of sophisticated judging that goes into these discussions and a certain amount of taste is involved um, very few people very few people even among scientists would be inclined to take umbrage with respect to Shakespeare. What a work of art this man. How infinite in faculty. That's plainly true. It's plainly true. Look at the glories of human existence. At the same time, we all agree with Dr. Johnson. Inquiry into original sin is not necessary. We're rotten as well. But that there is some compelling force urging us to go beyond the facts... It may be true for some people. Clearly, it's true for you, but it doesn't seem to be true for me. That is, I don't see the merit of the compulsion. Um, yeah, that's in, that, that, that's. Um, I mean, that becomes a much larger conversation. But I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, Believe me, I tell you, if I felt it, it's not being coy. Have, you ever, had, have you ever had a supernatural experience? What one would describe as a supernatural experience? No, I don't think so. Well, because I know so many people who have. I mean, I certainly have. And I think that there are intimations of 
something, even if you're not sure what it is. And so many people, it seems to be so common in the human experience. When you ask people, uh, maybe they wouldn't talk about it publicly, but they will admit to me and tell me a story or this or that. And I think if I were just a scientist, I would be fascinated by these stories and what do they say. And there seems to be, you know, in, this, in the same way... Uh, when you're in your book on Newton, another marvelous book called Newton's Gift, written, what, about 20 years ago? Correct. Something like that, yeah. Uh, about 20 years ago, you wrote... And, and in it, you talk about how Newton, this probably the greatest science, scientific genius who ever lived, he was really into alchemy. And we know, of course, that uh, he was uh, climbing a ladder that was uh, leaning against the wrong building. We know that. But, of course, you say at the heart of that, nonetheless... You know, they're beginning to get to, you know, what are the elements and, you know, atomic structure and the periodic table. They're just feeling their way in that direction. And I feel similarly that there's an invisible world we don't know yet. I mean, you know, uh, 100, uh, 200 years ago, we didn't know that there were all these waves in the room that are, uh, you know, I can find out a sports score. You know, sure, and it's, it's, so there's an invisible realm. And I'm just fascinated, almost just as a philosopher, the idea that people have had these experiences. And if you begin pulling them together, do you get the, sort of the rudiments of a shape of something beyond? Hard to know. Right. It's hard to know. I mean, but you don't need to repair to uh, physics for that sensation. I mean, after all the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the world. That was clear in the 16th century. It's clear today. I know some people who have uh, returned from that world, so I will, would quibble with Shakespeare uh, on that. Nonetheless, the point stands. Um, it's too much fun to talk to you, and I'm sorry, I think we're out of time. How about a round of applause for our new friend, Dr. David Golinski? Thank you.